0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 234, The Pilgrimage of Grace 1.0. I have a special sponsor for a while I'd like to tell you all about. And in fact, I am wearing at this moment. These are super cool. And I mean super cool Studio Regent wireless headphones of the on-ear type, if you know what I mean. They cover your ears, basically. They sound as clear as a bell. They are so easy to use after all the wire-based ones I've had to throw away over the last six years. And actually, they look great too. I look great. I think they may be my favourite bit of kit. I love them. Plus, there's a special 15% discount for all of you who buy any studio product. Just go to studiosweden.com, that's sudiosweden.com, and enter England on your order to get your 15% discount. Let me also remind you that this month's featured Agora podcast is the History of Westeros podcast, for you Game of Thrones enthusiasts, an immersive and an enthusiastic dive into the world of A Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones. And if you're partial to a pun and a cat lover, you won't be disappointed either. There is also a website, historyofwesteros.com. So, fresh from the act of royal supremacy in 1535, Thomas Cromwell was given a new orifice, that of vice Gerant of the church in England. This was a position taken from the practice that bishops had to appoint a vicar general to manage their ecclesiastical affairs for them. It's a little ironic, and yet how appropriate, that Henry chose a layman to do the job. There would have been little debate among contemporaries, evangelical or traditionalist, about the most important task facing the head of the Church of England, whether he be pope or king. That would be to take a good, long, hard look at the monasteries and subject them to a thoroughgoing reformation. In this, the new vicegerent was joined by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer. Cranmer had already set in train a visitation of the English Church, despite some carping and objections from the traditionalist bishops. Cranmer and Cromwell were thoroughly different people. Cranmer has many detractors, but where you might see inconstancy, you might instead see a man very aware of the complexities of the argument of the day, and willing to see both sides. Cranmer was undeniably a kind man who would be the only man to object to the king about the executions of both Anne and Cromwell and who intervened personally to try and help sort out Thomas Boleyn's affairs. The king liked Cranmer, maybe for this very reason. Cromwell said enviously of Cranmer that the king would accept anything from his mouth. Cromwell, on the other hand, would never have allowed himself to be as diffident as Cranmer was, but whatever their differences, they shared aims. They got on well together, and they worked well together too. We are at a high point for a while of the evangelical cause, with events driven by Cromwell and Cranmer cautiously pushing the king as far as they thought they could get him to go. We've gone back in time a little bit to the stage where Anne Boleyn was still around, and even conservatives like Stephen Gardiner were in a panic. Gardiner had recently boobed by trying to defy the king over the submission of the clergy, so much so he composed his defence of the royal supremacy, de vera obediencia, to try and worm his way back into the king's good books. It only partially worked. Now, Cromwell and Gardiner, they didn't get on at all. They understood that, however, they might be forced to work together, but they were not of the same mind. The king mistrusted Gardiner now, and for the next few years, he would be sent abroad. A man too talented to be completely discarded, but too political and too traditionalist to be trusted at the centre of affairs. In April 1534, in fact, Gardiner had been replaced as king's secretary by Cromwell himself. Cromwell understood that one of Wolse's weaknesses had been his physical remoteness from the king, and that his opponents had been able to exploit their distance, oozing into the cracks like water and pushing the two apart. As the king's secretary, Cromwell would always be close to the king and it was a post he would relinquish only with his death. As vicegerent, Cromwell was fond of sending circulars to the bishops and actually it's a feature of Cromwell's period in power that he constantly informs and communicates with officials at all levels, including sheriffs and JPs as well as bishops. He takes care to try and sell a message. His early communication included reminders to the bishops to reinforce the king's supremacy and remove the Pope from all communications. The response he got illustrated that the episcopate was now itself divided between enthusiastic evangelicals and very unenthusiastic traditionalists. It was a division that reflected the disunity of society as well. So evangelicals in St Albans, for example, they wrote to Cromwell and Cranmer in March 1535 to complain of hindrance of the pure word of God''. Elsewhere, preachers were criticised by their congregations for dangerous innovation. In vain did Cranmer try to keep the lid on things to create a bit of space, preserve the ''unity and quietness'' so beloved of the medieval polity. In June 1534... He'd issued a mandate instructing preachers for the space of a year to steer clear of any controversial themes. Things like purgatory, honouring of saints, that priests may have wives, that faith only justifieth, to go on pilgrimages, to forge miracles. The trouble is that while in his own head, a strange place, Henry was being very clear, the messages he was giving were actually very confusing to those around him. To do him justice, Henry did have a philosophy, the theological knowledge and the intelligence to work it all through. It's just that he was lazy. He really hadn't sat down with a wet towel on his head to create any kind of coherent doctrine. And he was hormonal, emotional. His hatred for Luther ran deep. Back in 1521, he'd called him a venomous serpent, a pernicious plague, infernal wolf, an infectious soul, a detestable trumpeter of pride, calumnies and schism. Luther had damned him to hell as a result, and Henry didn't forget an insult, whatever letters Luther might have written thereafter. So, Henry would not have it suggested that he was a Lutheran, and anyone with an I Heart Luther badge on his lapel was liable to burn. Henry presented his church as balanced between Catholic tradition and evangelical innovation, a church at once sacramental and scriptural that would denounce superstition while carrying on with devotional traditions. Eventually, from this approach would emerge the Anglican church, but in the meantime, Henry's bishops and subjects were forced to squabble over inconsistencies. For example, Henry quickly became unconvinced by the doctrine of purgatory, but he would not accept the Lutheran justification by faith alone. And so, as a consequence, he left his people without an alternative doctrine of salvation, which was understandably worrying. He was very early into the lists against pilgrimage, and he became doubtful about the sacraments of ordination, extreme unction, confirmation and confession, and so undermined traditional religion. And yet he never firmly moved to an unequivocal position on any of them. And so... Under the edge of the pew, his bishops scratched at each other in numerous committees, even when under the watchful eye of the vicegerent. And meanwhile, Henry found the evangelical preachers like Latimer, Crome, Robert Barnes, thoroughly handy to preach furiously against the Pope as Antichrist and support the royal supremacy, one area where Henry was slightly manically clear. And this let these firebrand preachers off the leash to slip in other messages which would have left Henry panting with rage. These preachers certainly produced a reaction one way or t'other. Resolute Catholics hated them, of course. One outraged vicar protested that the preachers taught the Gospels, not truly, but after the new sect calling themselves children of Christ, but they were children of the devil. As you can see from the language, we're not in a period of calm debate. English society was in danger of polarising in a way it had never quite known before. In Calais, the governor slept in armour, so scared was he that both sides would take to the street and cut each other to pieces. Sleeping in armour must be uncomfortable. Chafing, out of thought. And condensation would be a problem. He must have been very worried. And then, in June 1535, evangelicals and conservatives alike watched aghast as Munster burned. And the conservatives... Wagged their fingers and looked knowingly around them. That's the sort of thing that happens, you know. The Anabaptist appeared to demonstrate very clearly the dangers of challenging the ancient authority of the Church. Henry was equally panicked. In March 1535, his proclamation was aimed squarely at Anabaptists, warning against strangers born out of the King's obedience who had lately rebaptized themselves, denied the real presence in the sacrament, and taught other pestilential heresies. They were to leave the country within 12 days or suffer death. The year before, Parliament had loosened the heresy laws with the old case of Richard Hunn in mind. Now, Henry tightened them again. And now there was no guarantee, actually, that if he turned first time, you would not burn. Now you could be burned for a first heretical offence. As a result, the summer of 1535 was a summer of blood, Thirteen Flemish were burned for Anabaptism, three Carthusian monks were burned for denying the supremacy and, of course, Fisher and Moore would be executed, amongst others. Into this powder keg came reform of the monasteries. At one level, it was not particularly controversial. As I say, most would recognise that some change was needed and that in many places practices were not of the highest standard. That didn't mean for a moment it was expected they'd all be dissolved just that it was agreed that there were problems and changes were needed. And look, given the history of the monastic movement, which had been one of reform and renewal over the centuries, a successful reformation might be confidently expected. And indeed, there had been some reasonably uncontested dissolutions as well. After all, stalwarts of the religious world, such as Wolsey and Fisher, they'd closed multiple monasteries and used the money to endow education. By the early 16th century then, there were nearly 900 religious houses in England. It's worth noting that though they're often lumped together, there are different groups within them. Not that it made a massive amount of difference in the long run, but hey, we should be accurate. There were about 260 monasteries for monks and 300 for regular canons. I take regular canon to mean a community of priests living under a rule but attached to a church or cathedral normally. There were 142 houses for nuns, 183 friaries. There were about 12,000 inmates in all, across all the categories. 4,000 monks, 3,000 regular canons, 3,000 friars, 2,000 nuns. Don't you love stats in a podcast? Maybe just hold on to 900 religious houses and 12,000 inmates. The impression that these places were the home of the offspring of the great and the good looking for an occupation or superfluous aristocratic daughters is by and large false. The 12,000 inmates were overwhelmingly people of the middling sort, with a few notable exceptions. Recruitment was actually holding up pretty well, suggesting that the attraction of the places was still there. The practice of child oblates had been banned in 1215, but having said that, inmates still entered pretty young, typically between 17 and 22, and that was a matter for concern. One argument was that there were a lot of demoralised and disillusioned religious who were desperate to leave. There were some, true enough, but actually it seems to have been relatively small, probably less than 10%. And actually, after the dissolution, many nuns and monks continued to live together, suggesting a more robust commitment than might have been thought. However, in other ways, monasticism did seem to have lost its way a bit. There was without doubt still learning amongst the monasteries, but their relative place in the scholarly firmament had diminished. They'd simply been overtaken by events there. Bede, in all probability, would have studied, taught and written at a university rather than his beloved Jarrow. The same applies to a large degree to the monastery's place in education. Schools were taking over as well as universities. Some monasteries continued to offer teaching, often by maintaining schools, and we know of 30 of these for sure, and there may have been more, but that's still a relatively small proportion of the whole. One of the criticisms Henry himself threw at monasteries was that they no longer fulfilled their charitable function. So there is this traditional image from those horrified at the dissolution, a lurid picture of the poor, abandoned, frozen and starving, cast out from the loving and comforting monasteries that had previously sustained them. The whole story about this is confused by being mixed up with population growth and inflation, which undoubtedly would have caused massive problems, monasteries or no monasteries. And Henry probably had a point, that there were indeed many smaller monasteries that were too small and decayed to give much charity of any relevant level. Having said that, generally many monasteries did take their responsibilities seriously and gave what they could. The best estimate we seem to have is at something like 5 to 7% of income of the total estate went in charity, so that might be as much as £9,500 a year. This is significant in some localities, and many poor would certainly have suffered at the withdrawal of monastic charity in particular cases, but it's hardly an earth-shattering figure. Another problem was caused by the fact that while monasteries were supposed to be part of a renunciation of the world, Late medieval monasteries were often large-scale landowners living off profits of farming. It's an unfortunate combination. It meant that the only contact with their parishioners often was to collect the rent and evict them if they didn't pay, which didn't make them very popular or seem very holy. All of these weaknesses then made monasteries vulnerable to the common criticism and driver for reform. It seemed that monastic observance were now, at best, and excluding a few outstanding examples, mediocre, uninspired, pedestrian, offering little to society nor really fulfilling their function of offering prayers, and at worst, collections of idle monks living off rich endowments in sloth and depravity. The general conclusion of most historians these days is that these places weren't as bad as they had been written that they deserved reform rather than outright abolition. But nonetheless, the overriding impression is of an enormously wealthy institution of increasingly marginal relevance, whose wealth could be better used. So maybe it's how the fabric of the monasteries were treated, how the resources were redeployed, that laid the architects of the dissolution open to most criticism. One of the functions monasteries clearly did continue to fulfil was as a repository of the ancient and venerated relics and as a target, therefore, of pilgrimage and as institutions whose core purpose was to pray for souls in purgatory. So it's ironic that of all the evangelical philosophies, it was the end of pilgrimage and purgatory which were the ones that Henry would come to espouse most enthusiastically. To the end of his life, he would fiercely defend the real presence in the mass but the relics and places of pilgrimage were long gone by the time he died. Hugh Latimer recognised in 1536 that monasteries and the concept of purgatory were inextricably linked. The foundation of monasteries argueth purgatory to be, so the putting of them down argueth it not to be. So it was not just the supposed state of monasticism that led to demands for reform Just as education was leaving them behind, evangelism, if it succeeded, which at this stage was more than a little uncertain, threatened to leave them behind theologically. The royal supremacy led the same way. Monasteries were part of historically international orders and they had again for many years before Henry VIII been concerned about taxation leaving the country rather than going to the King of England, about loyalties from English monasteries outside England. But surely, I hear you cry, this is all moonshine. The real reason for the dissolution was the fact that Cromwell told Henry he could make him rich beyond his wildest dreams. The idea that this is how Cromwell gained his position is almost certainly wrong. The idea was out there well before Cromwell tipped up. It's worth saying, there had been for many years an argument that all this wealth was incompatible with the philosophy and meaning of the church. Henry could talk of his determination to regain the wealth of the church without embarrassment. Yes, there is no doubt that getting royal hands on the wealth of the church was without doubt a major part of why the dissolution happened. Without that prospect, it's entirely possible that the future of monasticism would have been very different indeed. No doubt many smaller monasteries would have gone to the wall, many would have been reformed as they had been before, would have been much harder to keep the nobility on board with it all. All I'm saying is that there was plenty of other justification for their removal. What it is difficult to argue with is the horror of the destruction of a vast amount of art and a veritable mountain of books. I know how I would feel if the English state said one morning that as a secular government, all the churches are going to be pulled down. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There is also a strong sense that the dissolution is a story of both conservatives and evangelicals betrayed conservatives at seeing essential articles of their faith removed and evangelicals at seeing their demand for the proceeds to go to endow education and support the poor largely ignored as well. Instead the main beneficiary was the crown and then the nobility who bought the lands up from them. As I say there will be more on the process in future episodes but in 1535 then Cromwell established a group of commissioners to make a complete evaluation of the parishes, a survey known as the Valor Ecclesiasticus. At the same time, specifically monastic visitations got underway as well. There could have been little more obvious a demonstration that the royal supremacy had arrived, that the king was taking up the staff of his responsibility for the church. By the end of 1535, the visitations had reported back. The men who led this process, the principal visitors, get a varied press. In some books, they are simply a bunch of Cromwell's hatchet men and dishonest thugs. In others, it's noted they were all well qualified for the task in terms of education, legal and practical experience. It's quite an emotive subject. The subtext is an assumption that Cromwell selected men who would give him the answer he wanted, and they set out to duly give the answer he wanted. And it seems clear enough that the commissioners went looking for trouble. They interviewed nominated people, they asked leading questions, and when they found Vice they made absolutely sure it was recorded and laid in front of their master, vicegerent Cromwell. However, it's equally clear that they made nothing up. If they visited a monastery and found it well run, that's what the report said. The outcome, however, was an Act of Parliament in 1536, which declared that the smaller monasteries of income of less than £200 would be completely dissolved. It's an odd decision. It made no attempt to align quality with outcome. The visitations had found no such relationship, i.e. that smaller monasteries were likely to be worse. Anyway, local commissioners would then be appointed to visit those places identified by the Act, reporting to Cromwell as vice-gerent as to whether or not he should proceed with dissolution in each case. The Act represented 372 monasteries, and at this point the talk in the Act is all about using the wealth of the monasteries better for the poor to endow education. It appears at this stage that Henry was following through on his promise to create a better, more streamlined and invigorated monasticism. 80 of the identified houses would actually be given exemptions when the local commissioners reported back that these houses were well run. And so it seemed that this was not just a process to dissolve, it was a genuine reform. And inmates, where monasteries were dissolved, were allowed to then go on to large houses and keep doing what they were doing. The process itself, though, whatever the intellectual argument and ins and outs, must have been pretty hideous. What people would have seen was the removal and destruction of often much-loved institutions they had been taught to venerate. As monastic houses began to burned and slighted, the roof led, stripped, walls often thrown down, treasures removed. It was the start of a violent and wrenching process. Meanwhile, in July 1536, Convocation began to move to try and quieten the doctrinal chaos, to try and create a doctrine that both evangelicals and conservatives could get behind and try and restore the unity and consensus that England had been used to for the last several hundreds of years. The result was a statement called the Ten Articles. As a statement, the Ten Articles was an exercise in compromise rather than clarity. And historians argue back and forth about whether they tend to indicate evangelism on the rise or resurgence of traditionalism. All seven sacraments survive. Hurrah for the Conservatives. But only three are specifically named. Hurrah for the Evangelicals. Prayers for the dead are allowed. Purgatory is not banished. But it's noted that it's not mentioned in the Scripture anywhere. Maybe the clearest thing, that it was a clear signal that the Crown intended to countenance reform and indeed to direct it. But the very lack of clarity of the town articles helped set Hare's running. And the one decisive part of the articles... Helped make it very unpopular, so a slew of local religious holidays were cancelled. All of those that fell between the 1st of July and 29th of September, i.e., harvest time, were redesignated as normal working days. Now that would have really hurt. So, lots of change. The quietness and unity that Cranmer was after was as elusive as ever. The lack of clarity in the ten articles reflected the lack of clarity of both priesthood and congregation, and bishops complained of murmurings against the king's law. And indeed, Hugh Latimer saw in questioning itself the way to real understanding, counselling that where there is quietness, there is not truth. It's an impressive, if rather uncomfortable, doctrine. So what I'm trying to paint is a picture of confusion and uncertainty in things that had previously been immutable, whatever the quality of your local priest, however strong the murmurings of anti-clericalism in your parish. The ten articles almost certainly did not end the confusions and disunity, categorically not. The subject of doctrine would be returned to at least twice in the remaining ten years of Henry's reign. And with the uncertainty came a rumour, and exaggerated and wild rumours at that. In the summer of 1536, a priest from Cumberland in the north of England was heard to say in a pub in Tewkesbury in the southwest that there would be a rising of 40,000 in the north. An Essex priest at Easter in 1536 had been heard predicting a rising in the north. 10,000 would rise and, before Easter comes, the king shall not reign long. Well, he might have been wrong about that, but he reflected the unease that ran through the country like a virus. One rumour had it that all the jewels and vessels of the parishes would be taken away and replaced by tin and brass. All christenings, burials, and marriages are going to be taxed. Unwanted parish churches are to be pulled down. One particularly wild rumour had it that no poor man would be allowed to eat white bread or goose without paying a tribute to the king. On the twenty-fifth of September, 1536, a royal agent called William Breyer turned up in Dent, a village in the Yorkshire Dales, and found that the day before, 500 men had gathered at their church and they'd all sworn to suffer no spoils nor suppressions of abbeys, parish churches or their jewels. Breyer was spotted by a local blacksmith. Breyer was wearing royal livery and within a minute, Breyer was in trouble and potentially in receipt of a knuckle sandwich. Thy master is a thief for he pulleth down all our churches in the country. Fortunately for the blacksmith, other villagers quickly pulled him away and offered the age-old defence of the king. It's not the king's deed, but the deed of Cromwell, the defence of the evil counsellor, the greamer Wormtongue defence. So then, let me take you to Louth in Lincolnshire, in the north-east of England. All these rumours and fears are circulating and washing around. And meanwhile there are three bunches of commissioners wandering around, diocesan, monastic and the king's assessors to collect a parliamentary subsidy. Times are still hard following the failure of the previous year's harvest. And then a prophecy was circulating as well, the mould warp prophecy, the prophecy of the earth thrower, the mole king. Mould warp comes from the Merlin, Geoffrey of Monmouth stable and had surfaced before. Notably, Henry IV had been accused of being mould warp. Now Merlin had prophesied that Moldwarp would be a hairy man with a hide like a goatskin. skin. He would be popular, praised by his people, but would allow this to go to his head and would then be cast down with sin and with pride and then lead all his life in war and in trouble and in much strife, condemned by the vengeance of God to wage a losing battle for his kingdom. The medieval world loved prophecies, ancient mysteries, Henry VIII, it was said, was the mould warp, and I have to say, it's not a bad fit. On Sunday, the first of October, fifteen thirty-six, the vicar at Louth, Thomas Kendall, was holding mass at the church. Thomas Foster, a yeoman, yelled out, "Master, step forth and follow the cross. This day, God knoweth whether ever we shall follow it hereafter." This was the lighting of the blue touch paper. Thomas Kendall was a local man, but he was also an Oxford-trained theologian with a history of heretic hunting in Essex. A man called Nicholas Melton seemed to have assumed leadership and he became Captain Cobbler, standing guard over the church. Captain Cobbler, because he was a cobbler. When the commissioner arrived the following day, his books were burned, including an English Bible that he had. The bells rang out across Lincolnshire, From Louth, a contingent of men marched to stop officials suppressing the nearby nunnery of St Mary's. As the rebellion swelled, a list of demands began to emerge that reflected their concerns. Cromwell was to be handed over, and I doubt they had a slap of the wrist over a pint of ale planned when they got hold of him. Along with him, they'd have the bishops Cranmer, Latimer's, and others mostly of evangelical bent. They wanted an end to arbitrary taxation, and no more monastic suppressions. As with all rebellions, there was a mixture of reasons for the uprising, and in line with Cobbett's dictum, I defy you to agitate a fellow with a full stomach, economic reasons loomed large. Local gentry began to get involved because Henry's statute of uses had prevented people from avoiding a royal tax when selling land. The price of bread was clearly an issue, and the deeply hierarchical Tudor society demanded that Cromwell be pulled down because he was of low birth and small reputation but there's little doubt that religious innovation was absolutely central. The royal supremacy was rejected, although loyalty to the king generally was absolutely not. Now was the time then when the English would rise up in defence of their beloved church and traditional religion. Here was the spark they'd been waiting for. Here was the moment when the people of Lincolnshire gave the English the push they needed to refuse, to say no. By the 4th of October... Things had got nasty. The Bishop of Lincoln was a Conservative, actually, but that didn't save his Chancellor, who was dragged in front of the mob and was beaten to death with staves. Next, someone spotted a man rather remarkably called Thomas Woolsey, who was lynched as a royal spy. Next was Lincoln, which was stormed by the rebel army, now 10,000 strong, and the Episcopal Palace was trashed. Priests flocked to the cause, as many as 800 were directly involved. Many local gentry also got involved. Some simply because if they didn't, their life expectancy would be seriously curtailed, but many because they generally wanted to get involved at that stage. But the local magnate, Lord Hussey, he decided to run away instead. This is important. Hussey, like another northern magnate, Lord Darcy, was a religious conservative. Popular rebellion didn't have a good success rate so far in England, down around that mmm, 0% rate. Now, equally, Hussey didn't actively stand in their way, but still, nor did he line up with them and endow the movement with the legitimacy and resource of the senior nobility. Down in London, news had arrived of what was going on in Lincolnshire. Now, Henry presided over a state which had almost no central forces of law and order. There were some yeomen of the guard around, but that was pretty much it, unlike many of Henry's European colleagues. So it is unsurprising that Henry was clearly both in a fury and very worried. He moved Mary and Elizabeth to Whitehall Palace to keep them close should rebels appear at the gate. He reinforced the White Tower. He called together a war cabinet, if you like, of 15 councillors. Stephen Gardiner, Conservative Bishop of Winchester, looked back at the event from later and reflected that Henry was so worried at this stage that he claimed Henry was determined to have given over the supremacy again to the Pope. Henry and his council set about gathering a royal army to defend London against the threat. Forces were slowly being mustered at Nottingham, Stamford and Huntingdon and would be commissioned to march northwards under the command of the Duke of Suffolk. The numbers involved were dramatic, 10,000 at Lincolnshire. Though he would not have known it, further north in the east riding of Yorkshire a man called Robert Ask had ordered the bells of Beverley Cathedral rung to call the faithful to arms. The rebellion was spreading and before a few weeks were out a further 50,000 rebels would have risen in eight different groups across the north. Tudor dynasty was going to have to fight for its life in a rising that would become known as the pilgrimage of grace. Now I can only imagine your irritation but this particular cliff edge is where I'm going to leave you for Christmas. I know I know it's annoying but I'm going to be taking two weeks off And we'll be back with you on the 7th of January when I promise you I will finally, after all these broken promises, tell you all about how the pilgrimage of grace goes. Now, if you are appalled at the Desert of History of England podcast that is Christmas and the new year, then you will be amused to know that there will be no such desert for members in a barefaced attempt to persuade more of you to sign up. We have an episode all about William Tyndale and the English Bible and a second podcast on place names. So maybe christmas time is the right time to give yourself and me a nice prezzy anyway that is it then for 2017 whoop whoop 33 podcasts from me this year plus eight from guests a little up on 2016 should you be interested and a stunning 22 shedcasts it's been a lovely year for me i hope it's been the same for you i hope all of you and your families have a wonderful christmas and a fantastic new year celebration and i'll see you all next year